Welcome to the Kindling's Muse podcast, an intelligent, imaginative, hospitable exploration of ideas that matter in contemporary life. And now, here's your host, Dick Stock. Ministries at the Kindling's Muse, whichever you prefer. Uh, we're real glad all of you are here tonight. As you probably know, this show is uh, taped at the University of Washington for a uh, in front of a live audience, and then will be rebroadcast as a podcast. Uh, so stay tuned for more uh, editions of the podcast tonight. Our uh, our subject is Christian reflections uh, on an epic story. And the book we recommended reading is Return of the King by J.R.R. Tolkien from his trilogy, Lord of the Rings. And uh, not a short little thing to read, particularly if you try to catch up on all three of them. Uh, This, of course, is one of the most fascinating and well-known books in in all of literature. Uh, Lord of the Rings appears in the top five of every list of the most influential books of the 20th century. Uh, The 1956 review for the New York Times, W.H. Auden praised this book, The Return of the King, and then described the trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, as a masterpiece of the genre. And I love this. The London Times, in their original review of the Rings novel, said the English-speaking world is divided into two groups, those who have read The Lord of the Rings and those who say they're going to read The Lord of the Rings. (laughs) And so we're not going to ask for a show of hands tonight to find out which you are. But uh, we're looking forward to a great conversation tonight about the return of the king. And will you join me in welcoming Reverend Earl Palmer? Uh, You know, when the Lord of the Rings was published in 1954, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote the review for the Times of London, who was a great friend of Tolkien's. And he had this great line, that it's a bolt of lightning on a clear night. That Mm. is his uh, wonderful description of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, Tolkien himself uh, made a statement after after writing this book and receiving so many accolades. Uh, Tolkien said this. He said, The unpayable debt I owe to C.S. Lewis was not influence as it is ordinarily understood, uh, but sheer encouragement. He, for a long time, was my only audience. You know, uh, he read chapters from the Lord of the Rings to Lewis. The other members of the Inklings were not as interested in hearing uh, the chapters about the Hobbits. In fact, they began to complain and said, we don't want to hear so much about Hobbits. So it was only Lewis that ended up listening to uh, Tolkien read, uh, because he started writing this, you know, in the late 30s. And uh, so he, he for a long time was my only audience. And then comes this great line from Tolkien, And only from him did I ever get the idea that my stuff could be anything more than a private hobby. Because it really was a private hobby. Writing it for his sons, his three sons. And by the way, when he started to write in in great intensity from 1939 on, because he earlier in 1937 wrote Hobbit, which is kind of like a prelude to The Lord of the Rings. But he wrote that. And then in 1939, he began to write... Uh, very, very uh, intensely 
uh, on his story. And that's when he was reading it to the Inklings and then to Lewis. And he called it his stuff. And this is touching to me. He had three sons who were all in the RAF, uh, Christopher and John and, uh, and, his, and his third son. And they, uh, he would send them chapters. Uh, uh, every, as he wrote chapters, he would send them to his three sons. And uh, it's just it's very touching that uh, he wrote it for his family and for himself. And then he did also say, but I, I did ha want to write a long story. <laughs> and so he, and that, that he did. He wrote a long story. And uh, there are th three great volumes that, that comprise it. Uh, uh, I'm going to read just a little bit from volume one, but we're going to mainly focus on volume three. But these three great volumes uh, are The Lord of the Rings. And it all starts with a poem that, and by the way, all the poetry in The Lord of the Rings is written by Tolkien as well. And the whole, the whole epic novel, this epic story, all begins in the very first page with a poem that, that is a key to the story. Three rings for the elven kings under the sky. Seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone. Nine for the mortal men doomed to die. And there you get three of the genre of people that you're going to meet in this great story. Elves who never die and who are basically good unless evil is brought in and to contaminate or to tempt them. And then the dwarfs in their halls of stone. And then the mortal men who uh, are doomed to die. They live ordinary lives. And then... Uh, uh, and then one for the dark lord on, the dark, on his dark throne in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. One ring to rule them all. The elves made all the rings, but one ring was made uh, by Saren, and that is his ring. And that is one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all in, in the darkness and bind them in the land of mortar where the shadows lie. And that alerts you to the fact that this is going to be, in a sense, a tragic story, too. It's a story of evil that has uh, the control of this one ring. And uh, it, the whole story is going to be a quest having to do with the fact that this ring was found. It was found in, actually, the story The Hobbit tells about Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, who uh, stumbled into it and, and, and found it. It had been found earlier by a man named Smeagol, and then he lost it. He ended up killing his best friend to get the ring because the ring has such intoxicating power. And it, 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 so this man found it first, and then he, he becomes a, a character in the story. His name is Gollum in, in this story that we're about to read and study together. But uh, the ring was found by Bilbo Baggins. It is brought back to the Shire because that's going to be the other kind of people you're going to meet in this story, the hobbits. And he brings it back to the Shire. Hobbits, uh, Tolkien says, are about four feet high. That's why they're called halflings uh, of, 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 against the mortal men. By the way, Smeagol was a small man. He was not a hobbit, but he was also very small. And then he's the one that... Uh, 
murdered in order to get this ring and to keep it and then became completely intoxicated by this ring. In fact, he calls it my precious. I, I, I've always made a joke about uh, that one jo a good Tolkien joke is that he destroyed the word precious for all people for all time uh, in this story because Gollum says it all the time, my precious, my precious. Be his ring is the precious ring that he always is after and wants. And so uh, he was the first to find it because it had become lost by Sauron. Sauron had lost it, then it became lost, and then it was found. And it uh, is taken by Bilbo to the Shire. And uh, in those early days, the, uh, uh, the Hobbit people, the Shire, is not noticed by, uh, by Sauron, who is uh, the owner of the ring, uh, until it's, began, it, it's used. And as it's used, it begins to notify, it's kind of, this is a great epic story, but notifies the source of this power, which the ring has from, from Sauron, who, who created it in Mordor. And now, uh, at that point, we'll, we'll notice a couple of things about the, about the story as it unfolds. The story starts, uh, really, uh, and you'll see that uh, Tolkien is more interested in the hobbits than he is in, in, than in anyone, anyone else. And so two hobbits are going to pretty much dominate the story as far as two protagonists that go through the story. But there are some great humans like Aragorn and others that you're going to meet as well. But the two hobbits are going to dominate the story. But here they are. One is named Frodo, the nephew, or nephew, no, actually the, the cousin of Bilbo Baggins, who got this ring and first found it, used it a little bit, then began to use it just for pranks. And But the one thing about, as, as Gandalf will explain to, uh, the, uh, to Frodo, when you hold the ring, part of the power of the ring is that you stay and never change. And that's what happened to Bilbo. People couldn't understand that he was 100 years old, though he looked like he was 50, because he never changed, though he got weary and became lost interest in living. And that's something that Gandalf will explain to Frodo. Those who have the ring, they lose interest in living, but yet they're intoxicated with the ring, this ring which has power. And when you use it, it enables you to become invisible, and it gives you power. But as you use it, it gets more and more uh, a grip on you and takes so it becomes a, an amazing kind of as symbol of temptation the temptation of power because as it's used uh, you get more and more power but it uh, it uh, gets more and more control over you so Bilbo just uses it sparingly in a way but uses it in a humorous way and then uh, it's uh, when he finally just shows lacks, lacks interest really in living and they just finally, oh yes, and the longer you have the ring, finally you become more and more invisible. And so he probably becomes invisible because nobody knows where he is, yet Frodo keeps having birthday parties for his cousin, though he never has appeared because we don't know where he's gone. So anyway, that's what happens to him. Frodo is the young cousin, and we meet the whole story, Lord of the Rings, starts with Frodo. Uh, Frodo, and, he, and, and we, then we meet his friends. He has uh, good friends. He has a friend named Sam, y, Sam uh, Gamgee, 
who becomes Samwise, will travel with Frodo, and then Merry and Pippin. There are four hobbits that will play a major role and are picked up all the way through the story by Tolkien. He's very interested in these four hobbits. But in the beginning, we meet Frodo. And the, the, when Gandalf the wizard comes and visits the Shire. He started visiting it earlier on when, when, the, when Bilbo Baggins was there. And the last time he was with Bilbo Baggins, he said, I don't like what's happening to you. That's the, the kind of the one negative thing that was said to Bilbo. Because Bilbo, you know, is, looks like he's just the greatest guy in the world. But uh, Gandalf says, I don't like what's happening to you. But then Bilbo just fades out of the picture. And his nephew or his uh, cousin, who is his heir, then gets this ring. It's, uh, he has it on a chain. He has it hidden, just like Bilbo had it hidden. And then uh, Gandalf comes and meets him, and this is how the story begins. And the first thing Gandalf has to do is he has to alarm him about the danger of this ring that Frodo now has. He doesn't realize this danger. And so uh, uh, Gandalf makes those statements that I just said, that if you, if you, uh, if you get uh, and, make, and make this your, uh, your ring and you, you have it all your life, you won't change. You'll stay the same, but you'll gradually become more and more invisible because that is what the magic of the ring can do is make you invisible. But it can, it'll, it'll cause you to fade out and you'll lose interest in life. So you, have, you live and you don't die but you, do, you lose interest in living. And he says, that will happen to you, Frodo. And so he alarms Frodo when he says, now you've got this ring. And he alarms him with it. And then uh, you'll notice all the way through the story that whoever has the ring doesn't want to let it go. So at this point, Gandalf says, may I see the ring? Can I see the ring? And at first, Frodo doesn't want to get it out because he knows his uncle hid it. It's hidden. He now has been alarmed by some of the power that it has. And then this is a very dramatic scene where uh, Gandalf says, here, let me see the ring, I'll, and I'll show you its power. And, it, and so as Frodo did so, he saw fine lines, finer than the finest pen strokes running along the ring, inside, outside, lines of fire that seemed to form the letters of a flowing script. They shone piercingly, piercingly bright and yet remote, as if out of a great depth. I cannot read the fiery letters, said Frodo in a quavering voice. No, said Gandalf, but I can. And then uh, what he does is Gandalf uh, takes the ring and throws it in the fire. And Frodo at first is, is, is uh, shocked that he would throw the ring in the fire and gets the tongs to go get it out. But uh, Gandalf says, no, just take it out. It, it has not uh, turned hot. It stays cold. It's in the ring, in the fire, but it didn't get hot. So he took it out, and now he says, what do you see? And he says, I see these scripts. And then at this point, Frodo uh, Gandalf reads what's the script inside this ring. I cannot read the, fi the, fi the fiery letters, said Frodo in a quavering voice. No, said Gandalf, but I can. The letters are elfish of an ancient mode, but the language is that of Mordor, because remember it was made by... Again, uh, by Sauron, and I will not utter that which I will not utter here. But this is the common tongue in what is said close enough. One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all in the darkness, bind them. 
Three rings for elven kings under the sky. Seven for the dwarf lords in the halls of stone. Nine for mortal men doomed to die. One for the dark lord on his dark throne. And then that last line, the most terrifying lines of all. In the land of Mordor where the shadows lie, one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all in the darkness and bind them in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. And with that, he does frighten Frodo with the power of this ring because that's what's written on this ring. And then Gandalf the wizard, the wise wizard, says, this is the ring. This is the one ring that is most terrifying and is the source of power. And it is of great danger to the Shire it's a great, you, therefore, you've got to get this ring away from the Shire. And, of course, very soon, uh, ring wastes, who are men that are, uh, belong to uh, Sauron, show up and try to raid this Shire. But by then, uh, Frodo and his friends have got out of the Shire. This is very dangerous because now Sauron knows where you are and will be trying to find you. And so they... And then a, a large part of what then happens is the journey that's in, in volume one, the Fellowship of the Ring, where they try to get to Rivendale, which is where the elves were, and to have a, a great council at Rivendale, where, see, the elves were the original makers of the rings until this ring was reformed and made bad. And so they're going to have a council to, f to figure out what to do with this ring. And so that's the, most of the adventures of volume one, to get to Rivendale. And at Rivendale, they have a council. And in the council, it's decided that the ring must be taken to the Mountain of Doom, which is the mountain that belongs. And this is what makes now the epic story. It's got to be taken there, and it's got to be taken up to the Crack of Doom, which is a great crack of fire at the top of the Mountain of Doom that is uh, in Mordor, where Sauron is. And, and there, the ring must be thrown into the fire and destroyed. And when it's destroyed, then the power of Sauron will be ended. But until then, it's, everything is in grave danger. So they decide who will carry the ring. And it's decided at Rivendale, at the council, that it should be carried by these halflings, not men, because men would be too easily tempted by the ring. Uh, that's the logic of Gandalf. In fact, Gandalf will not take the ring. At one point, Frodo is willing to give him the ring because he doesn't want to fool with it when he now is duly frightened of its power. But Gandalf will not take the ring. He gives the ring back to Frodo, and he says, No, Frodo, you're the one that must bear this ring now. Do not put it on unless you absolutely need to. But if you do, you'll begin to alert Sauron, and you will, you'll be in greater danger. So... The ring is given in a chain to Frodo. He carries it around his neck, and they go to Rivendale. They go to the council. It's decided at the council that this young man should, this young uh, halfling, by the way, he's not so young. According to Tolkien, he's 50 years old, but he's like, we think of him as a young man uh, because his age has stayed the same for a while. He's never changed from being young because the ring has been in its possession. See, whoever has the possession of the ring, they don't age. And so uh, he is chosen, and his friend Sam 
will end up going with him. And then what makes it, we were just joking about a good story. If you want a good story, don't just have two protagonists that are going to go on a journey with all kinds of horrible things that frighten them on the journey. Then why not put a anti-journeyer with them too, who is going to be with them and they can't get rid of him and will be with him on the whole journey and that will be Gollum who is totally intoxicated with the ring, has killed and murdered for the ring, would love to murder them if he could, but uh, they defend themselves several times from him because they have daggers, and uh, Gollum will be always with them to the very end of the story. And so you have, you have the, the travelers and then the anti-traveler, the anti-companion. So if you want a good story, you've got to have it's good to have two companions, then you have a great friendship story. But add the anti-companion, and that's Gollum, who will be with them, and they cannot get rid of him. He will be with them the whole way, because he is absolutely wedded to the ring, my precious. He's got to get to that ring, and he has been completely taken control of by the ring. So he will go with them the entire way. So there's the way... the. The council decides right away, even before they get out of the, the precincts of Rivendale, a, a wonderful young man named Boromir, who is a prince from Rohan. And he uh, is handsome and tall and very muscular and a very, uh, very fine and, and, and a very uh, gifted young man. He uh, hears the story of the ring and its power and how it has to be taken. And, to Mordor and has to be defeated. And he says, why should it be given to halflings? They're so weak and so small. Uh, let me do it. And so he goes to, to uh, Frodo and tries to convince Frodo to let him take the ring. And so right away, even before the journey begins, a young man, a, a, very, uh, a prince actually of Rohan, one of the empires, uh, offers and tries to encourage uh, Frodo to give him the ring. And then an interesting thing happens. He uh, reaches for the ring and tries to take it from Frodo. And Frodo instinctively, because one thing about the ring is it wants to protect itself at all times too. Frodo puts the ring on his hand and then he vanishes and Boromir cannot find him. And I think some of Tolkien's most brilliant writing comes there at that moment when, uh, because now Frodo is going to see the intense power of this evil and this ring. And the minute he takes the ring, he's now invisible. Boromir can't find him, but uh, then he has these, this amazing set of like nightmarish dreams. All the power of the Dark Lord now was in motion. And turning south again, he beheld uh, these various empires that they're going to that play a part in the story, and far away it seemed that white walls, many banners. He sees these empires, and then he sees them being defeated and destroyed, and then and then he sees uh, Morgul and the haunted mountains, and then as last his gaze is held wall upon well and battlement upon battlement, black, immeasurably strong mountains of iron, gates of steel, towers of adamant, he saw it. And then the fortress, finally, of Saran, he sees it. And then all hope left him, 
at that moment. Now, this is what he's seeing while he's invisible with this ring. And then suddenly he felt the eye. And those of you that seen the movie, they really do a great job with this eye. It's put on the cover by Tolkien. He drew that of what the eye was like. He sees this eye that's watching. And he saw the eye in the dark tower that did not sleep. He knew that it had become aware of his gaze. A fierce, eager will was there. This is Tolkien describing this, out, this evil power. It leaped toward him. Almost like a finger, he felt it, searching for him. Very soon, it would nail him down, know exactly where he was. And it glanced, and then he threw himself from the seat, crouching, covering his head with his gray hood. And then he heard himself crying out, Never, never, or was it, Verily, I come, I come to you. Notice, he's wavering. First, never, never, and now I'm coming to you. I, I'm intoxicated by the power too. I'm coming to you. He could not tell which it was. Uh, never, never, or verily, I come, I come to you. He could not tell. Then as a flash from some other point of power, there came to his mind another thought. Take it off, take it off, fool, take it off, take off the ring. Uh, a little bit of interesting, almost like flee from temptation. That's almost, uh, but he hears another voice from another place saying, no, take it off. And so the two powers strove in him. For a moment, perfectly balanced between their piercing points, he writhed, he was tormented, and suddenly he was aware of himself again. Frodo, neither the voice nor the eye, free to choose, and with one remaining instant in, what, in which to do so, he took the ring off his finger. He was kneeling in clear sunlight before the high seat. A black shadow seemed to pass like an arm above him. It missed him and groped out west and faded, and then all the sky was clean and blue, and birds sang in every tree. Okay, that's the, the way it starts. He hasn't even got away from Rivendale, and he's been already tempted by the ring, and he has seen the immense power of this ring when he did use it. And so it terrifies him. So he doesn't use it again for a long, long time. Uh, it's funny. It's used a couple times in a rescue attempt by Sam Gamgee, who does use it, and it doesn't have that effect on Sam. But Frodo... Uh, has that terrifying experience. Now the journey begins. And uh, in a minute, we'll move to the, the, the third volume, but I just wanted you to just say a little bit about what happens in the stories from now on. The story is going to be focused on two parts, or two, you might say two journeys, or two courses. The first is going to be a Frodo himself and all the struggles that he and Sam Gamgee, Sam Wise, his great friend, will face with the, uh, the anti-companion, Frodo, uh, the uh, Gollum, tempting them and trying to steal the ring from them, but they, uh, he'll always be there, and, and will lead them into grave danger. Uh, for instance, you'll, you'll see uh, F Frodo stung by a horrible spider and almost killed. In fact, when uh, Samwise sees him, he thinks he's dead. And that's when Samwise does take the ring off of Frodo's neck and puts it on in order to try to rescue him because they're 
they're wrapping him up and they were going to take him and so he has to try to to use the ring that way and he does use it and he gets away with that without having it contaminate him but poor Frodo and Sam face they're imprisoned by orcs they have bad experience after bad experience in the journey and that's what makes a great adventure story and now the second course that happens is what's happening to all these other people what's happening to the, the people, for instance, Boromir, the one who first was tempted, then repents of that and goes out and, and fights valiantly and actually rescues and helps to rescue Sam from orcs that immediately do an attack, and he ends up killing the orcs, but he himself is killed. And so Boromir, your first fatality of this young prince, Boromir, it plays a major part in the rest of the story because they bring his body back to Rohan and, uh, because he was very brave. And uh, though he was first tempted and then uh, resisted after he uh, 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 repented of that, then he then becomes valiant in battle. Uh, but in, in the meantime, there are these empires that are un, in great stress. And what makes the story work is in all these stresses, there are these very big close calls for these uh, uh, countries, you might say, and cities and great, uh, uh, great uh, battles that are being fought. But then always uh, amazing close calls where, for instance, in one great battle, uh, we meet another whole uh, genre of creatures, the trees, the ents. Uh, that's another, Tolkien is creating all kinds of things. But he has these tree people and these giant trees in order to protect the environment from the destruction by one of Saren's uh, uh, lieutenants is Sar Sarman. And Sarman is a, a lieutenant of Saren. Uh, but he then is uh, destroying the land and these trees... Uh, come and rescue the the the, the hobbits, uh, Pippin and Mary, and they enter in battle. These trees come down. If you saw the movie, that was done with great skill. The trees actually defending the land from from Mordor and its uh, destruction. And then one other great moment is when Aragon realizes that there's the path of the dead. And no one has dared to go into the path of the dead. But Aragon is very brave. He's the king. He is the return of the king. You'll see at the end. But Aragon goes through the path of the dead, finds the dead. And this was done beautifully in the movie, too. And finds that the dead were warriors. And they all died by not keeping a vow to protect the land where they were. And so they are now in a kind of permanent uh, imprisonment. Uh, in their in having died, but not being able to go to heaven, not being able to have rest. They, they're not allowed to rest because they didn't keep their vow. And Aragon talks them into keeping their vow. And as you know, in one of the great city battles, you see these ghosts that come into the city and defeat uh, the orcs and terrify them. And then uh, you see that kind of those kinds of close call scenes that are just make great uh, make great drama and great epic uh, proportions but th that's on the other side in the meantime uh, the the two hobbits 
are trying to get to Mordor, and they finally do get to Mordor, the, island, the, the mountain of doom, and they go up in the mountain of doom with, uh, with uh, a great uh, danger. And finally, uh, uh, as they're going up the mountain, getting close to the crack of doom where they have to put that ring in, when they get close to that point, there is a, in the movie, they did a beautiful job in The Return of the King. All of the, there's been a, uh, they have gathered together all of the forces of the people who are on the side of good that are going to c confront Mordor and, and go to the gate of Mordor and actually confront Sauron. And it's a very close, terrifying scene uh, where they're all lined up and waiting for the gate of Mordor to open with great hordes of orcs and hordes of, of these ringwiths and then the nazals, which are flying, horrible flying birds, are about to attack these uh, people who are the, 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 the heroes from Rohan and the heroes from Gondor that are trying to rescue the land against this evil. And in the meantime, Frodo and Sam Gamgee are going up the Mount of Doom and coming up to where they can take this ring through many perils of being captured, imprisoned by the orcs, then rescued, and then finally to the Mountain of Doom, and they get to the crack. And when they get near the crack, I, I will read one scene there that is just absolutely unbelievable. As they get to that one scene uh, in the, the Return of the King, uh, uh, there is a it's, a, it's a complicated, it's a complicated mixture of things that happen there. When they get to that, uh, when they get to that near the edge, Sam is now there, he is exhausted, he's been so heroic, and he has been such an amazing uh, friend to, uh, to uh, uh, Frodo, and, and now Sam says, uh, well, no, just before the final scene, uh, Gandalf, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Frodo is, is again been uh, attempted, an attack was attempted by, by Gollum, and Gollum is finally pinned down by, by uh, uh, Sam, and Sam has got his knife and his his sword, He's, he says, now at last I can deal with you. He leaped forward from the drawn blade ready for battle. Gollum did not spring. He fell flat on the ground and he whimpered. Don't kill us, he always uses the plural for himself. Don't kill us, he wept. Don't hurt us with nasty, cruel steel. Let us live, yes, let us live a little longer. Lost, lost, we're lost. And then when precious goes, we'll die. Because see, he knows that Frodo is about to throw the ring down in that crack. So he says, when the precious goes, we'll die. Yes, die into the dust. He clawed up the ashes of the path with his long, fleshless fingers. Dust, he hissed. Sam's hand wavered. His mind was hot with wrath and the memory of evil. It could be just to slay this treacherous, murderous creature, just... The many times he deserved it, and also it seemed uh, only the thing to do. But deep in his heart, there was something that restrained him, and he would not... And by the way, this happens several times in the story. At several times, Sam could have killed 
Uh, and one time he was stopped from killing him by Frodo, but could have killed, uh, you know, because after all, remember, Gollum has led them into places where they could be destroyed by the great uh, Stelab uh, spider and all. But deep in his heart, there was something that restrained him, and he could not strike this thing lying in the dust, forlorn, ruinous, utterly wretched. He himself, though only a little while, had borne the ring. He now dimly guessed the agony of Gollum's shriveling mind and body, enslaved to that ring, unable to find peace or relief ever in life again. But Sam had no words to express what he felt. Oh, curse you, you stinking thing. Go away, be off. And so he doesn't, he doesn't kill him. He, he, he lets him go. And then uh, Sam, uh, then Frodo is right there at the edge of the tomb, and then a strange thing happens. Frodo stirred and spoke with a clear voice. Indeed, with a voice clearer and more powerful than Sam had ever heard him use before. And it rose above the throb of the turmoil of Mount Doom, ringing in the roof and the walls. I have come, he said, but I do not choose now to do what I came to do. I will not do this deed. The ring is mine. And suddenly, as he set it on his finger, he vanished from Sam's sight. Sam gasped, but he had no chance to cry out, for at that moment many things happened. Something struck Sam violently in the back of his legs and then knocked him from under, and he was flung aside, striking his head against the stony floor, and a dark shape sprang over him, and he lay still for a moment, and all went black. And so far away, as Frodo put the ring on and claimed it was for himself, then also then the dark, the tower trembled, trembled from its foundations and its proud and bitter crown. The dark lord was suddenly aware of him. The eye, piercing all shadows, looked across the plain of the door that he had made, and the magnitude of his own folly was now revealed to him in a blinding flash, and all the devices of his enemies are at last laid bare, and his wrath blazed in consuming flame. But his fear rose like a, black, a vast black smoke to choke him, for he knew the deadly peril and the threat of, the, of, of his doom which now hung. And then at that point, uh, uh, his whole mind and purpose was, that had welded him and now bent with overwhelming force upon the mountain. And at his summons, wheeling with a, reeling, a rending cry in the last desperate race, there flew faster than the winds uh, the, the Nazgul, the great bad birds, and, and the ring waste. They were in the, in the sky now. And the storm of wings that hurled southward to the mountain of doom. And Sam got up. He was dazed, blood streaming from his head, dripped in his eyes. He groped forward and saw a strange and terrible thing. Gollum, on the edge of the abyss, was fighting like a mad thing with an unseen foe. To and fro he swayed, now to the brink, and he almost tumbled in, then dragging back, falling and falling to the uh, ground, rising and falling again, and all the while he hissed but spoke no words. The fires below awoke in danger and anger. The red light blazed, and all the cavern was filled with a great glare and heat, and suddenly saw him, uh, Sam saw Gollum's long hands draw upwards to his mouth, his white fangs 
gleamed, and then he snapped as he bit. Frodo gave a cry, and there he was, fallen upon his knees in the chasm's edge. But Gollum, dancing like a mad thing, held aloft the ring, a finger still thrust within its circle. It shone now as it verily was wrought of living fire. Precious, 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 Gollum cried. My precious, oh, my precious. And with that, even as his eyes were lifted up to gloat at his prize, he stepped too far. He toppled, wavered for a moment on the brink, and then with a shriek, he fell. And out of the depths came his last wail, precious, and he was gone. And so the ring was destroyed. And uh, then Sam comes over to, to Frodo, who's got had his finger bitten off now because he bit the finger off and got the ring. Master, cried Sam, and he fell upon his knees. In all that ruin of the world, for the moment, he felt only joy, great joy. <laughs> thank you, thank you, much. He felt only joy, great joy. The burden was gone. His master had been saved. He was himself again. He was free. And then Sam caught sight of the maimed and bleeding hand. Your poor hand, he said, and I have nothing to bind it with to comfort it. I would have spared him a whole hand of mine, rather, but he's gone now, beyond recall, gone forever. Yes, said Frodo, but do you remember Gandalf's words? Even Gollum may have something yet to do. See, earlier on, Frodo, uh, Gandalf said that to him. Even Gollum may have something yet to do. But for him, Sam, I could not have destroyed the ring. The quest would have been in vain. You remember, at the very end, he's determined to do it, but then Gollum goes for his hand. The quest would have been in vain, vain at the bitter end. So let us forgive him, for the quest is achieved, and all is now over. I'm glad you're here with me, here at the end of all things, Sam. And so then they're lying down on the, on the, the ground, and the, the mountain is now completely convulsing. And down below, remember I, that scene where the, 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 all of the soldiers were standing in front of the, the gate of Mordor? The minute the ring goes in that chasm, then all the Nazgul's flee. And all of the soldiers of Sauron lose, they lose their will and they run. And so the victory is won. And then the eagles come. The eagles come, and the Nazgul's vanish, and so the battle was won. And then, uh, uh, then at that point, uh, Gandalf makes a great statement. The realm of Sauron is ended, said Gandalf. The ring bearer has fulfilled his quest. And then the captains gazed south to the land of Mordor. It seemed to them black against the pall of clouds. And then a beautiful thing happens. Then Gandalf, leaving all the matters of battle to, to Aragorn and the other lords, stood on the hilltop and called. And down to him came the great eagle, Gwynhere, the wind lord, who stood before him. He says, twice you have borne me, Gwynhere, my friend. And Gandalf, thrice shall pay for all, if you are willing. You will not find me a burden much greater than what you bore me from uh, Remember when he went with the Balrog and fell, the, the, the eagles rescued him from the Balrog. I could bear you, answered Gwynar, whether you, uh, you will 
even were you made of stone. And then come and let your brother go with us and some other of your folk who are more swift, for, or most swift. And we have need of speed greater than wind, outmatching the, the wings of the Nazgul. The north wind blows, but, it shall, but we shall outfly it, says Winhir. And he lifted it up and Gandalf and sped away to the south. And with him went Landraval and Mendelor, these young and swift eagles. And they passed over the, the mountain of doom, blazing and pouring out with fire. And I'm glad that, that you're here with me, said Frodo. Here at the end of all things, he's lying there with Sam. Yes, I am with you, master, said Sam, laying Frodo's wounded hand gently to his breast. And you're with me. And the journey's finished. But after coming all that way, I don't want to give up yet. It's not like me somehow, if you understand. Maybe not, said Sam. Maybe not, Sam, said Frodo. But it's like things are in the world. Hopes fail. The end comes. We have only a little time to wait now. We're lost in ruin and downfall because the whole mountain is convulsed in fire now. Well, Master, we could at least go further from this dangerous place. Then he moves him to another place. And then he says to him, I wonder if the people back in the Shire will tell stories about the nine-fingered Frodo and the Ring of Doom, if they'll tell about that. And so it was that Gwynhar saw them with his keen, far-seeing eyes, and he, as, he, as down the wild wind he came and dared with great peril of the skies, he circled in the air two small, dark figures, forlorn, hand in hand on a little hill, while the world shook underneath him and gasped and rivers of fire drew near. And even as he spied them, he came swooping down and saw them fall, worn out, choked with fumes, heat, stricken down by despair at last, hiding their eyes from death. And side by side they lay, and down swept Gwynhir, and down came Lanreval and Mendelore, the swift, and in a dream, not knowing what fate had befallen them, the wanderers were lifted up and borne far away out of the darkness and the fire. And then they woke up in bed in, in, a, in the town. And then when they wake up, they discover that they have to go over to a great presentation where the king, Aragorn, is going to be crowned. Uh, I want to ask just three questions here at the end. Uh, what is the value of a story like this? And what is the importance for us of such, a, uh, such, a, uh, such a story of, of the imagination of J.R. Tolkien? And I have just three reflections. One, it is a serious story about the cumulative power of evil. That really is, it really is a story about the cumulative power of evil made more grave as we seek to use such enticing power. The more we try to use it, the more we join it, the, the greater its power gets over us, like it did over, of course, Saren, who, who is the source of it. And, it, and, uh, and we saw that wonderful scene where it begins to get control of, of uh, Frodo. Uh, and the second part of the story is the, it's a story about how strong goodness is 
and the friendship of goodness. And even the goodness that restrains uh, the attempt to take vengeance against Gollum, even that goodness that was shown by Sam and also Frodo, uh, it becomes a greater strength than the, the strength of the terror of the evil of the darkness. And so I think that's the second thing that Tolkien is working with here, is the, the goodness uh, of friendship. And especially when that friendship has a, 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 a just and good source. And then best of all, uh, Tolkien himself uh, gave us one more word. And it may help to understand a little bit uh, of the final scene. Uh, in, a, in an essay he wrote uh, uh, called On Fairy Tales, he is explaining the, what he calls the consolation in these stories of the marvelous, a story like this. What is the consolation? And he says, I call the consolation eucatastrophe. He created a word. It's catastrophic, and yet it's good catastrophe. It's a good catastrophe greater than the catastrophe. And where goodness wins out over the catastrophic. And so he said, uh, the eucatastrophe tale is the true form and the highest function of a story of the marvelous. And then uh, he explains, the consolation of, of, of this story, the joy of the happy ending, or more correctly, of the good catastrophe, the sudden joyous turn. Uh, and that turn happened right at the edge of the crack of doom. Here is Frodo tempted with the ring. And then as he gets the ring, the same thing that happened to him earlier, in the earlier time, he sees the horror of it and then says, no, I don't want to do it. But at that point, Gollum bites the ring and takes the ring off his finger and, of course, goes down. And the ring then dies with Gollum. But it, the ring it is ended. And uh, the joy, which uh, is one of these things which uh, a story of the marvelous can produce supremely well, is not essentially escapist or fugitive. It, uh, it does not deny the existence of the catastrophe or of sorrow or of failure. The possibility of these things is necessary to the joy of deliverance. And so it denies, though, the universal final defeat. And in so far as that, he says, it is a kind of what he calls an evangelism. It is a, an evangel. It's got good news in it that the final defeat does not belong to evil. There is a, there is a joy and a and a goodness is the final victory. And so you get a grieving, fleeting glimpse of joy beyond the walls of the world. And, the, and so then he says that uh, however fantastic or terrible the adventure, it can give to a child or a man who hears it when the turn comes, a catch of the breath, a beat and lifting of the heart, and tears as keen as that which is given by any form of literary art and gives it a, a peculiar quality. But that lifting of the heart, that 
moment when there is that turn of joy. And Tolkien uh, preserved that in Lord of the Rings in this sudden ending. And I just think uh, uh, that uh, that gives it a... Uh, it, it gives... He, in fact, a little later in this same essay, he says, he said, I'm a Christian myself. And so I can't, as a Christian, I can't believe in the final the final uh, defeat of good. I, I just don't believe that. I believe uh, in the eucatastrophe. And then he puts it this way. We see a brief vision of the answer that's far greater uh, in the real world. That, and that's, the, that's my epilogue. The serious and dangerous matter. I'm a Christian. And I believe that it would be uh, that the 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 last word does not belong to evil. The last word belongs to God's goodness. And so the birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history. The resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the story, the whole story. And he said, that's the Christian story. But in my adventure story, I still preserve that sense that evil does not get the last word. The last word belongs to the eucatastrophe, the good catastrophe. Well, there you have it. We've heard a, an amazing overview of highlights of an epic story, three volumes, and, uh, and then a few reflections. And we'll be back to uh, some more questions from our audience, and we'll have a few questions as well. This is Dick Staub. You're listening to Earl Palmer at the Kinley's Muse. Don't go away. Welcome back, everybody. This is Dick Staub, uh, your host. I actually almost said what I used to say on my nationally syndicated radio show, your beloved host. But uh, you haven't actually risen up and given me that acclaim. So, uh, But anyway, yeah, the beloved host. The beloved Earl Palmer is with the beloved host. Yes. And the beloved audience. We should be talking about the Gospel of John. Uh, well, this has been a really quick overview hitting the high points of an epic story. I'm really interested in a couple of things that Tolkien said about this trilogy that seem a little at odds, and I'm wondering if you can help me with this. He said in one place, as for any inner meaning or message in this trilogy, it has in the intention of the author none. It is neither allegorical nor topical. Yeah, that's actually in the introduction. Right. It's the introduction. But then, in a letter that he wrote to Father Robert Murray on January 8th, uh, he said, The Lord of the Rings is a fundamentally religious and Catholic work, unconsciously so at first, but consciously in the revision. It was my desire to stay theologically orthodox that led me to, be, to avoid being too specific despite the biblical parables, uh, parallels in my story. He said, uh, the religious element is absorbed into the story and into the symbolism. Yeah. So what is going on when we read a book like uh, The Lord of the Rings, this amazing trilogy, and you have somebody who was a devout Catholic and his faith would have influenced his thought. We also know that he was very influenced by, by the North, the the great stories of myths of, of the North, as was C.S. Lewis. 
how do we go about understanding any kind of theological insights in a trilogy like this without crossing over into a place that Tolkien wouldn't really have wanted us to go? Yeah, uh, that very section that you read earlier, Tolkien, uh, first of all, he said this is not allegorical. In other words, I don't, uh, not, I don't have symbolic, like Gandalf is not a Christ figure. Gandalf himself can't carry the ring because he knows he'll be tempted. And yet Gandalf has amazing wisdom and is a prophet. He plays a prophet role. And uh, now the, the question is with the, with the Balrogs, when he went, is that a resurrection? They thought it was a resurrection, but we now know the great eagles rescued him. So he has rescuers who do uh, help him. And, but he's not Christ. He doesn't redeem. He doesn't try to redeem. But he does stand there, and he's a warrior himself and fights with the, uh, in these battle scenes. And I like what Tolkien went on to say in that very part you quoted. He said, it's not allegorical and all. Like, I'm, don't say, oh, Gandalf is a great example of Christ. No. What you've got, he said, is I wanted to be a, have a narrative that would follow logically a, a, a narrative like any bio, biographical story would do. It would, narrate, it would narrate and follow a story, but it would follow your life. It would follow it through dangers and through the kinds of things that uh, the terrors that you would, you would face. And, uh, and, uh, and then to try to do that as accurately as possible. In fact, in the article I read uh, from here, he makes that same observation, that the story has got to make sense. It's, it's got to be kind of true to life, in a way, when it's going through this story journey part. And, uh, and that's why he doesn't make Frodo perfect. Mm -hmm. Frodo is, you know, he's flawed, too. The, the closest person to non-flaw is... Sam Gamgee, Samwise, who, uh, and it's interesting, he's an underling. I mean, he is an assistant. He doesn't have that primacy role. He's not carrying the ring. He's just helping Frodo, who is carrying it. But at key moments, he's one uh, that rescues Frodo, but also uh, that wonderful scene when he won't kill Gollum. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he just we can't do it. He, he is, there's a kind of a uh, restraint, a, a goodness restraint. And, and then, of course, in an earlier scene, the goodness restraint is on Frodo's side. Sam wants to kill yeah. Gollum because he saw that Gollum almost killed Sam, yeah. uh, almost killed Frodo. And, so he, and it's Frodo who, he says, restrains mm. him and says no. So uh, there, I think... Tolkien wanted to show goodness uh, and its, its power, the power of goodness. Yeah. And, but the power of evil had to be shown. Carrie Dearborn, um, a mutual friend of ours, said that uh, Tolkien didn't like allegory, but he liked to smuggle truth yeah. into his stories. <laughs> uh, and, and I think when we look at archetypal stories, great archetypal stories, <laughs> another example would be um, Star Wars where you have the light and the dark. You have the dark side and you have the light, and there's a battle between the two. But is it, would it be pushing too far to say that, that Tolkien is definitely, 
exploring, when he's exploring darkness, that he's actually exploring a doctrine of sin. Yeah. You know, when he talks about the, the ring mastering you, if you, you start out thinking that this is a pleasurable experience and then you find out that you've lost your power over yourself. When you talk about uh, uh, Frodo at one point in your idea of he's living, he's not dead, but he's not really enjoying life anymore and he has some great stories. When Tolkien, there's a BBC um, a, a, a CD of uh, Tolkien reading a section of the story. And when he reads Gollum's uh, Precious, he extends, have you heard that? It's, it's an amazing thing because you're hearing Tolkien himself and he goes, Precious. And he says, you should have got to let it linger like a snake, like a serpent. So, I mean, you, you get this pretty clear li uh, lining up of biblical concepts of 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 sin and its power, yeah. and and it's uh, it's it's kind of almost magical attraction. Uh, is that going too far? Is no, it? but that's what he's saying in this article. In this article, he said when you're tracking uh, evil, you've got to track it realistically. Uh, you've got to show it's 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 got to make sense. That that intoxication has got to make sense. Now this. The intoxication of the ring is uh, uh, the one thing, it protects you, it protects you. And isn't it interesting that the, the one main uh, devious character that is, plays a part in the story is Wormtongue, who works for Saruman. Saruman. And Saruman is the, uh, one of the lieutenants under Sauron, and, uh, who had once been good. See, mm -hmm. he had been a wizard, just right. like Gandalf, but then he went bad. And a little bit like, and you see where uh, Lucas borrowed that for Star Wars. Yeah. It, Darth Vader was once good and then went bad. And that's Saruman, Saruman who uh, uh, has the tower, you know, the, the, yeah. the great tower, and he goes bad. But his, uh, you might say, his emissary in King Theoden's, uh, palace or Cali is Wormtongue, and Wormtongue's whole strategy with Theoden is to protect him into uh, weakness, so that uh, the, the you must be protected. You need to be protected from your foes. You've got your enemies out there, and we'll protect you from your enemies. And uh, I remember when Gandalf shows up, he says, "What a, a Stormcrow? What have you come here to disrupt everything?" Uh, and uh, and then Gandalf opens all the windows in the castle, and that's how he defeats Wormtongue. But Wormtongue is uh, def is you might say conquering or trying to conquer Theoden, and he doesn't succeed. But he Gandalf outwits him. But he tries to conquer him by by convincing him that he needs protection from enemies. Yeah. And that protection from enemies, you've got to be protected from your enemies. Yeah. And so that becomes, that's now that's the other side of the coin. The aggressive side is you need to defeat your enemies. Right. And then that becomes an intoxication. The intoxication of being able to defeat, to use the power to defeat. But uh, so Tolkien puts both in there. Yeah. He has, has both of those. To me, Gollum as a character, Smigel and Gollum are, are the really quintessential 
meaning of the wages of sin is death. Not, not just physical death, but the emaciation, the dehumanization, the, the extraction of what is good and, and, and alive into a hollow person. And I, but speaking of, of death, do you think that Tolkien is laying out any kind of theology of, of life after death? Uh, there's this, uh, this, this uh, word of Pippin. Uh, he says, I didn't think it would end this way. And Gandalf says, end? No, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path. One that we all must take. The gray rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass. And then you see it. And then in another place, uh, Tolkien has this, this beautiful paragraph. And the ship went out into the high sea and passed into the west. Until at last on a night of rain, Frodo smelled a sweet fragrance in the air. And heard the sound of singing that came over the water. And then it seemed to him that as in his dream in the house of Bombadil, the gray rain curtain turned all to silver glass and was rolled back, and he beheld white, white shores and beyond them a far <laughs> green country under a swift sunrise. Hmm. Is that kind of hinting at afterlife, or is that just another world in Tolkien's... Well, it's, yes, it's, yeah, he's... he's uh... He's going toward Rivendale. He's going to, he, and uh, uh, he's going to uh, be in a safer place and and a f and a place of fulfillment. I think, uh, yeah. And uh, now, on the other hand, Sam gets married and raises children. Right. It's the in the Shire. So you got the two. Frodo sails on to another one kind of fulfillment. Right. And Sam, who is the other great hero. He's the oh, great yeah. hero. And some people would say Sam is the greatest hero. Yeah. Uh, because he's underneath all the time, but yet is so faithful and so good. Yeah. And he gets to get a fam raise family and just be an ordinary person in the Shire. Yeah. So it's funny. It's it a great line where uh, Frodo is consoling Sam that he's leaving the Shire. And he says, you have so much to enjoy and to be and to do. Kind of a, a kind of a nice vision of a normal human life. Yeah. Um, I want to I, I want to take a quick break here and get to uh, some of the questions that I know our audience has. But I do have to ask you: Did you feel that Peter Jackson's films captured the epic themes of the story? Did you uh, feel that uh, he uh, did yeah. it he did it justice? Uh, yeah, I really did. Uh, you know, it's it sort of. You wondered how in the world, uh, how you could, how you could possibly capture all this stuff in in film, and not make it just uh, cartoonish, and I think they succeeded, especially in the Return of the King. Uh, the first two, uh, because they're so battle scene oriented, you can see where it it scared my, my wife surely didn't like it she didn't like all those battle scenes those orcs and the orcs are very but then that's that's the, because of her high christology uh, were, which we learned last but it's because of those two those month. two chapters have that i mean that who wants to be in that great scene with the spider that stings him in the neck and then he's like he's dead 
And then, but thank God for Sam, who uh, thinks he is dead, but is trying to rescue him so he can have a proper burial. But, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, which is interesting, like the resurrection of Christ, because that's what the women were trying to do, is to make sure Jesus would have a proper burial. Yeah. Not realizing that he is uh, more powerful than, than death. Uh, and in a way, that the... the the sting of that spider was not the last word. Yeah. And there's a lot of those moments in this whole story. Something that's so grave and dangerous, but not the last word. Yeah. There's still one more word. And, uh, and and then Tolkien, being the story writer, gets to put that word in that he wants. Well, this is not the last word because we're going to get to some questions from our audience. We're going to have to move through them quickly. So... Uh, we'll try to get to as many as we can, and please uh, make your questions uh, brief and succinct, and uh, Reverend Earl Palmer, of course, will keep his answers brief and succinct, and we'll, we'll hope to uh, meet our deadline here. This is Dick Stop. You're listening to Killing's Muse. Don't go away. We'll be back with more right after this. Muse, Earl Palmer Ministries, and uh, usually we go out in the audience to get these questions, but in the interest of time, we're going to try to whip through them a little more quickly, and I'll try to make sense of them, and I'm combining at least three different questions in this one that had to do with the time in which the book was written and what impact that had on Tolkien's themes. Um, for instance, this is one way of, of asking the questions. The 30s uh, was a decade when numerous evil men rose up. Mussolini, Hitler, Stalin. World War II began in 1939, the year Tolkien began this work. Is the work a response in some uh, way to those dark leaders and their power? How did the times of war that the world had struggled through inform the work of Tolkien? And uh, does Tolkien's World War I experience reflect itself in the Lord of the Rings. In other words, war and rumors of war and experience of war and the rise of evil men. And the other thing we'd throw in there would be the Industrial Revolution, which which was a, a big part of, of what Tolkien was responding to. Yeah, I mean, the, the ecological themes are like with the yeah. ends, yeah, would be uh, f in terms of concern for the, uh, the, the saving of the earth itself. Yeah. Uh, Tolkien himself says so that after World War I, he really suffered uh, uh, post-traumatic stress. Uh, you've got to understand that he was ca a captain of a, a unit, and his, uh, two of his very best friends, a guy named uh, Gideon and a guy named Smith, were in his unit. And uh, Tolkien got trench, uh, trench mouth, and then he was put into a field hospital, and his, in now hold your breath, his entire company were killed including his two best friends. And one of them bef uh, died of uh, gangrene and had uh, wrote him a letter. He said, uh, beloved, uh, he said, dear uh, uh, John Ralph, uh, that was his name, John Ralph Rule. John Ralph, you must complete the story that we, that we were working on. You have to complete our story. Because these boys that were in this little group only one survived. In, in, in two, there were four boys, and they were absolutely devoted to each other in high school. And they, they met together and talked about their stories. 
and they dreamed of stories. And uh, two of them killed at the same, in, in the same company. Tolkien spared because he was, and maybe some felt some guilt over that, that he was spared, they died. And his other fourth friend was in the Navy, so he didn't die. But so here's Tolkien. He says the immensity, the horror of trench warfare uh, in World War I literally overwhelmed him. And so that's when he started working on the story. Then he did The Hobbit. Then in 1939, I just made a little passing reference to it. In 1939, when Poland was attacked, World War II began, he then just threw himself into his story again. And by now, he's got two boys that are in the RAF. And, you know, the RAF had the highest death uh, levels of anything in World War II for the British Army. Those guys were dying just right and left, flying those little those planes. And he had two sons in the RAF, and one became a Roman Catholic priest, John. Uh, I've been to his grave. It's just a few feet from his dad's grave, and uh, Father John Tolkien. But uh, the other two were in the RAF, too, and they, they survived. Uh, Christopher is the one who has uh, it does the main editing of, of his work. And so, you know, that he says it, that the, uh, the horror, and, the, and then when he saw World War II coming, it literally alarmed him. You think of it, Lewis and Tolkien lived through two world wars. Very few people, I mean, they were both in the First World War, both injured in the First World War, and then both, well, now, Lewis did not have sons in the Second World War, but here's Tolkien with three sons uh, in harm's way, and it was on his mind all the time. Yeah. And, and he's writing this story. And he wanted to write a story about the immensity of evil, mm. how immense evil is, and how captivating it can be, especially when you join it in order to succeed. And that's what he saw Germany doing, joining evil in order to win. And it worried him greatly, and so he decided to write a, an adventure story where that is the theme. And, you know, you have to admit, it's very Grim Reaper stuff. The, uh, if you think of uh, Sauron and uh, the evil of this ring. And, uh, but is, there is some good in this world, and it's worth fighting for. Yeah. That's what Samwise says. Uh, second question. What, uh, this is from Ed. What parallels do you see between the dual nature of Gollum and Paul's use of the old self and new self in some of his letters? Yeah, I think it's uh, probably a better picture uh, uh, in Frodo because Gollum has gone... To the dark side. He has gone to the dark side, uh, except there are moments where Gollum pulls back himself, and you could say he does it just for strategy. And there's two ways to read the Gollum scenes where Gollum pulls back. And, and does in a couple of places he does wisely lead the two boys, the two young men. And then other times he's leading them into the orc entrapment because he wants them entrapped and wants them, and then of course to the spider, wants them to be stung. Then, then if they die, then he can go get the ring off of their body. And so, uh, but then other times he pulls back. So yes, I guess you could never say this is what, I, what bothers me even with like Darth Vader in the, in the Star Wars. If you, if you consign a person completely to the entrapment of pure evil to where that's all there is that radiates out of that, 
I, I don't see that as a biblical picture. I mean, there, uh, you know, there are, there are, uh, uh, the, the story is still never completely over till it's over. Yeah. And, but with Gollum, uh, he is a complex character, but he did, he did so, he was so intoxicated with evil yeah. uh, that it became him. And, but what you said about Frodo now and, and, and a few minutes ago, uh, he's, a, he's a very, very much like most of the biblical characters that have immense flaws and, and wonderful, great qualities. Yeah. This wonderful innocence that he has, and yet his, uh, his vulnerability to the seduction of the power of the ring. Oh, by the way, don't forget, remember that the one I just read it quickly, when Sam is over prostrate, uh, fro, uh, prostrate go Gollum, notice the words Tolkien has him say, you pitiful man, and then he said, and, God, and Sam remembered how the little time he had the ring, he was aware of its intoxicating power. And you now are completely absorbed by that intoxicating power. But Sam remembered himself that in the short time he had the ring, he also was intoxicated with it. Now, while I'm asking this question, you answer it. I'm going to ask my dear friend Clark to come up uh, to help me with the interpretation. He, he likes to write in Ugaritic, which was an ancient language. Uh, <laughs> And he's a dear friend, so we'll look at his interpretation of this, this powerful letter. Um, but here's a question, and it's already kind of been hinted at, but I think it's asked differently. Rarely does the writing of a single story span nearly two decades. What changes do you observe in writing, the plots and the themes and the tone, between the younger pre-World War II father writing a second Hobbit and the older post-World War II writer. Uh, you mean between Tolkien's writing The yeah. Hobbit and then writing yeah. the... Uh, well, the, uh, the Hobbit story is milder, uh, you know, in a sense, and the, uh, the Lord of the Rings is more, uh, uh, more nuanced and complete. It, it has more themes, you see, than The Hobbit. Uh, the, the, uh, the Hobbit is a great story, but it, it is a kind of a children's story. He had thought of it as a children's story and, uh, and is milder. Uh, the, uh, though I, I believe even in The Hobbit, uh, Smeagol you know, is, is a, a very bad character, but still uh, it, it seems milder. Yeah. And, and Clark, only, only a dear friend could be humiliated in such a way. So I can ask my question real briefly. Okay. And that is, the, in, the intoxication of power, does Jesus, in our Christian perspective, give us the antidote to that by coming in his incarnation without power, giving up power on our behalf? Yeah. The, yes. Uh, it, it's the... It is the victor who becomes a victim, who goes by way of the victim route and and absorbs the evil uh, there is no character here really that absorbs the evil in in the Lord of the Rings in the same way uh, that uh, I'm trying to think if there's what well, he doesn't it, absorb the 
the power. Uh, but but Samwise is an interesting character because he's constantly presented as someone who has no power, and yet he has tremendous power. Yeah. You know, in the in the life of Frodo and in crucial moments when he steps into the gap. I mean, he's he's an interesting. Yeah. When it comes to this the discipleship motif, uh, you know, Frodo. That that's why I made the earlier comment of the two characters. Uh, it's it is it is possible. And it should probably be said that the character with the most uh, kind of stature at the most critical moments is uh, is Sam, and he and he, but always trying to protect uh, uh, Master Frodo, and and trying to, and notice he's the one that has uh, hope f at the end, and he in that dark moment he says. To, uh, I love that scene where he says to Frodo, you know, at the Shire, they'll tell stories about us. I mean, they, they think they're going to die. They'll tell stories about nine-finger Frodo and his faithful Sam. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, he is, and there's the, the richness of kind of humor in that, that he makes fun of Frodo's nine fingers now, but he still got rid of the ring. Yeah. And uh, You actually choked up a little bit when you read that part. Yeah. It's an emotional section. This is our final question, and um, as you know, Reverend Palmer often uh, tells us about interesting new word combinations that were created in the Greek language, and so I thought we should answer this question. Cheryl wants to know how you spell you catastrophe. Uh, is it Y-O-U catastrophe? Like you are a catastrophe? <laughs> um, which, which many women here tonight might want to comment on their view of their husband. Uh, or what is the actual uh, spelling? And it's important because it's combining two Greek words. I mean, yeah. eulogy, think about that. What does you mean, E-U? It's never just you. A you is a negative. Right. Like utopia means no place. You yeah. should, utopia is not EU. See, topo means place. Right. So when they talk about utopia, that because just the solid single U in Greek means no, just like A means no by itself. But this is EU, and EU always means good. It's one of the really warm, good words. Like eulogy. Like, yeah, good word. Right. And by the way, that is also the word for blessing in the New Testament, to say a good word. The, the good word, uh, the word that has its source in God's love. Uh, and so now, Tolkien surprises us, though, by taking the word, you know, catastrophe means to collapse. It means, uh, that's catastrophe, to, to, uh, all by itself, just collapse. And now you've got you collapse. And that ties into Clark's uh, insight, too, about the... the out of weakness comes uh, hope. See, out of someone who bears the collapse, bears the, the destruction, and goes through the destruction, like the destruction of, of sin and death and the power of the devil and the power of evil. And then imagine if there was an EU, a good that was stronger, especially the EU always had, comes out of the strength of God, yeah. his goodness. The goodness that goes through catastrophe and uh, rises above it. And that would be like resurrection, see? A good catastrophe. That would be a good catastrophe. 
Well, a lot of good questions tonight, a lot of interesting comments from Reverend Earl Palmer, and a reminder to those of you that are in the 50% of the world who intend to read um, the trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, perhaps we've bumped you over now and become part of the group that has read it. I, a, a guy tonight, right over here, Jesse, told me he's read it about five times. And five that, times. That right? Who has read it more than five times? How many times have you read it, Chris? Nine or ten. Every, Every winter. winter from the time he was published. So how many, how long did he live? <laughs> well, <laughs> Two my, years my, beyond the publication date? Or? Yeah, 1954. Wow, okay. my, my son said he reads it every year, wants to read it, the Lord of the Rings, every year. Well, the moral of that story is old hobbits die hard. Um, this is Dick Staub. I want to thank you for joining us tonight for the Kindling Spews at Earl Palmer Ministries. We'll look forward to seeing you again next time.